0: You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar. Before you listen to this podcast, I'm going to come clean. My cat, Stinky, was in the room and I know I should have locked him out of the room when I'm podcasting, but I didn't because I thought it would be fine. And so all of the bumps and the little meows that you hear, uh, me... And Stinky, and me trying to desperately stop Stinky from treading all over my keyboard and knock the microphone over, which he was intent on doing the entire time that I was recording this. So, yeah, this is me, Tabitha Ferrar, and Stinky. Welcome to this week's podcast. Hello there, how are you? Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm going to spend a couple of podcasts uh, answering some emails because. I'm always saying email me and I'll discuss these topics and I try my best to get guests in often to discuss topics but some of them are ones that are just asking me for my own experience and this is one of them. I'm going to read you the email right now. Okay, so she writes, I just started reading your book and I don't know how to finish yet. However, I was wondering if you'd be willing to do a podcast on the comparison between life during and after recovery. And then she goes on to say that she's got a whole list of examples um, of what she's sort of wanting to know a little bit about. So I'm going to go through that list one by one. The first thing that's on the list there is dining out. Okay, so dining out before recovery. Um, pretty traumatic most of the time. I couldn't really do last minute. Spontaneous was not Tabitha when I was sick, when I had anorexia. It had to be probably as mo- the most notice as possible. So I had to have at least a couple of weeks notice to know that I was actually going to be going out. Even then I would want to know as many details about where I was going as possible. So I'd want to know which restaurant we were going to. I want to know who who was going to be there. Uh, I'd look the menu up online. As soon as I knew I was going somewhere, it could be two months in advance and I'd look the menu up online. And then I spend a lot of time with my calculator, precisely calculating the caloric value of each meal. Um, I'd, I'd sort of, you know, even if it was a week in advance, sometimes I would start event restricting for dining out and when I say event restricting I define event restriction as the type of restriction that we do when we have an out of the ordinary event coming up and I could event restrict or I would event restrict not just for things like going out to eat but I'd event restrict for taking the cat to the vets because it would be out of my routine and maybe I'd have to sit at the vets for longer. I can't really rationalise it because it's not like the vet is going to start offering me food and chocolate bars. So I don't know what I was thinking, but it would just be that anxiety. Anything that was out of my schedule and caused anxiety would cause me to restrict because restriction reduces anxiety. So of course you're going to want to do that. And then going through recovery, I had to really change The way I dined out, I had to, first of all, not allow myself to look restaurant menus up beforehand. And the biggest thing that I had to do in recovery, regardless of how difficult it was for me to do this, was not to event restrict, so not to eat less in the days or even the hours leading up to going out for that meal. Um, And of course that was stressful, that wasn't an easy thing for me to do, but I actually found that... If I didn't event restrict, I felt more relaxed and more open to actually eating with with less stress when I finally actually got to that restaurant. And I believe the reason for that is when we restrict, we go further into energy deficit. The body's in a higher state of stress. Um, and uh, if you think of anorexia as a migration response to famine, the more you go into energy deficit, the more that the brain is thinking that there's famine in that environment. So the response to famine is to eat very little and move a lot. So your brain's asking you, move move more and eat less. And so if you don't eat as much, even at, at breakfast and at lunchtime, anticipating going out for a meal later on, by the time you get to that meal, your body's going to be even more in energy deficit. And the urge to migrate to eat very little and move a lot is going to be even greater. You're going to be more stressed out. And most of us find that that's true, even though logically it doesn't make sense to our um, eating disorder brains. What logically makes sense is the less I eat leading up to going out, the more freedom I feel when I get there and I feel like I'm able to eat. But it, it usually works in the reverse to that. If you restrict during the day in order to go out for an evening meal, by the time you get to that evening meal, you're a ball of anxiety and stress. Okay, so, yeah, dining out now. How is that? It's pretty fun. Um, you know, it's food, food becomes a lot um, less emotional when you come out of energy deficit. Food is emotional when you're in energy deficit because your brain is using emotion to motivate you into behavior. And on the one side, you've got the anorexia response using disgust, fear, threat, regret around food to motivate you to eat less and move more. And on the other side, though, you've got the body and malnutrition using lust, desire, obsession, emotions of wanting food to motivate you to go and find food. So you're stuck in the middle of all these very conflicting emotions, which I'm so happy to tell you, go away when you come out of energy deficit. Because when you're in energy balance, the body and the brain don't need to use those emotions to motivate you around food. So it's really cool. Food's quite unemotional. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy it. I really enjoy eating. But... If I was going out for a meal tonight, well, we might do, because I can be spontaneous now as well, so I can just decide five minutes before we're going to go, or let's go out and eat somewhere. But if I had that planned, then honestly, I doubt I would think about it until half an hour before I've actually got to get ready to go out. So that's a huge difference there as well. Because my brain is not in a state of malnutrition and it doesn't need to prioritise thinking about food all the time, I don't think about food the whole time. That's not to say I'm not thinking all day, believe you me, I am, there's always a lot on my mind, but it's other things, it's work, it's creating podcasts, it's writing blogs, it's horses, Um, food, there's a lot on my mind, but it isn't food, it's not food at all, which is wonderful. <laughs> so now, you know, dining out is is pretty uneventful, un- unexceptional, I don't certainly don't look up menus, so I don't even really have to know where we're going beforehand. I don't really care as long as someone's going to feed me. I get there, I choose what I want off the menu. If there's a burger or a cheeseburger on there, especially the sort of like chef-crafted ones, that's pretty much what I'm going to go for each <laughs> for each time. I do love burgers. Um, but, you know, I can choose anything I like on the menu, and sometimes that changes, but pretty much meat between bread is always going to be a hot favourite with me. Um, And the food will come, but I'll be more invested in the conversation, frankly. And sometimes, you know, a big difference with dining out as well that I've noticed is that if I get served something that's not really that nice, I'll eat it anyway and I won't worry about it that much. Whereas when I was in recovery, one of the worst things was being served something that wasn't really that nice and then eating it and then have all this food regret afterwards. Like, oh my God, I shouldn't have eaten that and I didn't really like it and all this anger would come up. Well, it's actually happened a couple of weeks ago I went somewhere and i I had a a burger in a place that really should make hand you know you expect it to be handcrafted really big juicy burgers and it, it was kind of lame um and but I ate it and my sister was staying and I really enjoyed talking to her and her boyfriend I was just I ate it and it was fine, but it wasn't world changing it wasn't that great and it was like. No guilt, no regret, no emotion around that either. Otherwise, the only thought I really had around it was, I'll know not to order a burger next time I come here. You know, that's as, that's as much as I thought about it. But I do recognize the change in myself there. That before, that would have traumatized me. And I would have been thinking about that burger for weeks and weeks, worrying about it and thinking I shouldn't eat, eat in it and berating myself and trying to compensate by our exercise. Those urges and desires to do that are no longer there, which is wonderful. And so the other thing on her list is examples to compare before and after recovery for exercise. Well, anybody that's read my book and knows my story knows that I was a huge compulsive exerciser. Um, Exercise was a horrifically large part of my life and every day. Um, And... I couldn't not exercise, at least I believed at that time I couldn't not exercise until I went cold turkey and forced myself not to exercise, and that wasn't an easy experience either, but it was very, very well needed. Um, before I, even in recovery, and certainly when I was, when I was um, sick, I sort of exercise in the same way I could cal- I was calculating calories the whole time. I was sort of calculating all the time how much exercise I'd done and how much exercise I needed to do. And that was another thing that was continually running through my brain. And that's not present anymore. Um, I don't actually even have... I don't have a gym membership now. I don't really have much desire or need to have one. Although I could have one if I wanted. And I, I did have one until recently. And the reason I let it go is because I hadn't been for months. So... That should give you some indication of how reliant I am now on exercising. Um, Not at all, I would say. But I also, when I was in recovery, I had to go through cold turkey and I had to be very careful and make myself not exercise. And that's not the case now either. Um, I can take it or leave it. I have no desire to get compulsive about exercising. I have no desire to run. I could go run if I wanted, but I just—it's just the will is not there. And I tried it once a couple of years ago. You know, I think I was sort of four years into recovery and I thought, well, it's probably safe for me to try running again now and see if I like it. I probably got about less than 20 minutes in and then I turned around and went home because it just wasn't fun. And what's the point in doing something if it's not fun? You know, the, the wonderful thing about going cold turkey on exercise is that if you do that for long enough, so I went cold turkey for a year and just over really, but... Anyway, if you do that for long enough, then not exercising becomes your new normal and it becomes the baseline. And once that, once, once not having to formally exercise is your normal, then everything else can sort of grow from there. And once I've been long enough knowing that I didn't have to formally exercise and nothing bad happened, I, why, why would I need to start again? And so I ride horses and I walk my dogs um, and sometimes I go on a hike my husband's always trying to make me go on bike rides with him and I can't stand it. Um, so <laughs> a lot of the time I'm actually trying to get out of exercise, which is quite funny, especially living in Boulder, Colorado, where everybody's obsessed with it. Um, I'm probably one of the only people I know that's not in a running club or does, has a gym membership. So I think that maybe can tell you how much my attitude to towards exercise has changed. And, um, I think that a lot of people will be like, why, you don't even have a gym membership? Because that's so normal to do that now. But you've got to think, 50 years ago, nobody had a gym membership. This is relatively new. The idea that humans have to do this formalised exercise all the time. And I've discovered that my body doesn't actually need to do that. It does pretty well just walking around and living life and doing things when they're fun. And that's about it. Okay, so... Another thing she's got on this list is coldness. What a good topic, coldness. I was always very cold when I was underweight. That um, makes sense. If your body doesn't have any body fat to cover it, you're going to be cold. And um, I actually got frostbite a couple of times um, because not only was I always cold, but of course I had an exercise compulsion, which forced me to go out running for hours and hours, even in the winter. couldn't run in the gym because I was banned from two gyms um, for overly exercising and so I one winter I had to run outside all winter and um, so I got frostbite a couple of times and due to that I have some permanent damage in one of my feet which means that one foot gets a lot colder still than the other one but that's just due to the damage done. One of the wonderful things of recovery that I sort of knew that this would naturally happen, that I would stop feeling cold as much when I gained weight, but it's still, when it really did happen, like that first winter that I spent when I wasn't freezing and having to wear 20 layers of clothes, that's a slight exaggeration but you know what I mean, I always probably wore at least five or six layers, even in the house, and that first winter when I was sort of sitting there in a t-shirt, like, because the heating's on and I was hot, was just bizarre and wonderful to me like this is really me this is really me i don't think that had ever happened for so many years to be in january and warm because i could i could be cold with all my layers on in the house it's it's like i i mean i could be cold in the summer so in the winter without putting the central heating up to a um, level that nobody else would be able to stand um I was just I was used to being cold it was it was normal to me, and it was so wonderful and still is so wonderful to not be cold the whole time and I live in Colorado now, so we ski um during the winter downhill skiing, which is super fun, but I actually am a person who naturally runs quite warm, so I can get warm skiing and I can be out in the snow and actually still get pretty warm. Um, I always ran hot as a child, of course, when I was very underweight with anorexia, I then was cold the whole time, but having returned to my natural um, and... Uh, healthy body weight. I'm I run hot again, which is really really nice. You know, and there's so many good things about that. It's not just about not always feeling painfully cold the whole time and not having to hover next to the radiator all the time. But one of the other great things is that I can wear nicer clothes. You know, if you go to a Christmas party, I can actually put a dress on and not be freezing. It's it's just everything is a lot more fun. Um, okay, so another thing that she's got on here is um, social life. Well, that's changed dramatically. I always actually assumed that I was an introvert um, because I was so very introverted and I had anorexia all of my adult life until I was about twenty eight so that's all I'd known about myself as an adult and I, I figured that I was an introvert and even if I took all of those personality tests, I'd always come out as as an introvert every time um, and being an introvert doesn't mean that you're not social i thought I was an introvert, and it turns out that I'm not. (laughs) And that didn't happen overnight either. A couple of years after recovery, I would notice just more and more my um, reactions to situations and things and the degree of um, time that I wanted to spend around other people was altering and it was changing and it would even be a surprise to me that I'd sort of be the one saying let's go out on a Friday night rather than let's stay in which had always been me and it's not to say that going out or staying in that I'm judging either of those things I'm just saying that my um, desire to go out or stay in all the time changed as as I got more and more into recovery so and I also noticed that just m- my ability to talk to and listen to and communicate with and connect with other people changed dramatically. So if you think about a brain in a state of malnutrition, it's thinking about food and that brain has to prioritize food because we've got food, water, oxygen. Those are the three things that your body needs in order to live. So if any one of those is out of whack, your brain's going to focus on those. And um, if, if you didn't drink water for five days, your brain would Focus on water the whole time. Well, you might have been dead. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how long a human can go without water, but you get the picture. If you haven't got one of those things, your brain's just going to obsess about that thing. When you're obsessing about food the whole time, it's you don't really. What's the point of being social? Your brain's just like, no, no, no. You need to think about food and stay alive. You're not thinking about people right now because you need to think about food. And when you come out of energy deficit, and food, water, and oxygen are all uh, nice levels and you're in energy balance the brain can move on to other needs that it wants fulfilled and so you start thinking about boys or girls and <laughs> sex comes in there and just social and i just found my desire to be around other people and connect with other people really changed as did my ability to listen to them so um, i know that when i was in energy deficit i could be talking to somebody and half of my brain would always be thinking about food What am I going to eat next? When's dinner time? Or, you know, stressing about food or thinking about exercise. Whereas when I came out of energy deficit, I just gradually began to notice that, oh my God, I've just had a whole conversation and I wasn't thinking about food. When you can have a whole conversation and fully pay attention and not think about food, you connect on a different level with other people. And therefore, friendships start to mean more to you and the other person involved. It's a really fascinating experience. Again, not something that, it's not, this is not a switch that flicks overnight. This is something that you will notice gradually. As your body's been out of energy deficit a while, you'll gradually notice that these things start to change slowly. Um, and eating out with others, this is a, the last point that she's written in this email that I'm going to um, address. How did eating out with others change? Well, I've explained how dining out changed and I've also explained how my social life changed and just my um, ability to connect with other people and be around other people. So those sort of things come together a little bit when when you're eating with other people. But you'll likely find that when you're in energy deficit and your brain's in a state of malnutrition, eating with other people is stressful for one reason or another. Um, Most of the time it's incredibly difficult to eat more. Than other people are eating and you'll get a sense of well-being um, if you eat less than other people are eating because that sort of is anorexia saying you know if you're in a famine environment and you need to move and you can't stop and eat the whole time if you stop and eat longer and feed for longer than anybody else in your tribe you're going to get left behind because they'll move off and start my moving quicker than you so it almost feels like a competition to eat the less um, and that can be really stressful you're always observing what other people are eating but then conversely you'll also find that because you really do desire to eat more when other people don't eat very much you'll find that really damn annoying and you'll get mad at them at least I used to I just remember one meal time with my mother in particular I don't know why this one stands out and we were both eating a sandwich which was a kind of big deal for me and I was having multiple mini meltdowns in my head while I was eating the sandwich but I was determined to eat it and then I was also determined to eat it all and I've made my mind up I'm going to eat this whole sandwich. This was early on in recovery for me and I was just sort of still struggling through these battles. And my mother left the crusts of her sandwich and I wanted to kill her for doing that because she that had such a stressful impact on me that she had left just those little crusts of her sandwich and I need to mine and it felt horrendous. I felt disgusting. I felt... Um, huge amounts of anxiety all of those emotions are the emotions that anorexia is strongly moving um is bringing strongly bringing up to sort of motivate you to eat less than other people and move more than them and so the fact that I'd eaten more than her at the same sitting I still remember how stressful that was for me but I survived and I got over it and I gave myself a talking to and I also was able to continue to tell myself I've been eating abnormally low amounts of food for a a really long time in recovery I have to eat more than everyone else and I was really proud of myself because I had this little internal meltdown about the fact that she's not eating her crusts and then I just thought fuck it I'm in control of this I'm not going to feel bad about this and I got up and I made myself another sandwich and ate a second one just to prove that I could do that and just to prove not only could I eat the same amount as her not only could I eat more than her but I could eat double that she would and that that was okay and that that was what I had to do and so that's still an example though of how eating with another person was significant to me then whereas now I mean what's eating with others like about now it's just that I feel about as emotional about that that question as I do about saying well what's my you know what what is it like to wear a pink jumper when other people are present it just doesn't bother me. I can eat food when people are present. I can eat food when people are absent. I don't care what I have to eat. I don't care what they eat. It's just nothing. It's a non-event. Um, I mean, it's more fun sometimes to eat food with other people because you get to talk and stuff like that. But likewise, sometimes I don't want to talk to people. So I'm quite happy to eat food on my own and read a book. It's just... It's it's completely unexceptional. And it's not something that I really think about. And... Um, a lot of, you know, one of these things that you you have these moments in recovery that sort of strike you as they're like, wow, that's different. And I still remember one time going out to lunch with my husband, Matt, and we had lunch. And then that evening when I was making dinner for us, I realized that I didn't know what he'd eaten for lunch, which sounds like such a stupid thing to say. But that's how hyper-aware I always was about what everybody else was eating. I always knew what everyone else at the table was eating. And for me to sort of get after that, that lunch and then realise I have no idea what he ate, that was a, a significant indication to me that something was shifting in my brain, that my hyper-awareness around what other people were eating was starting to diminish. Because like with everything else, it's not an overnight switch, but you'll just notice that slightly, slightly, slightly over months and sometimes over years, things are shifting and it's always shifting for the better until so I think it was about you know a while after that. And I can go out for lunch now and, and then realise that I can't even remember what I had to eat at lunchtime when it comes to dinner, which is another indication of how little attention I play to food um which for some as for somebody who used to have all of my mental processes revolve around food and thinking about food the whole time the freedom that that gives to that my mental processes no longer do that and food is unexceptional and just not a big deal is incredible um so Yeah, that's um, answers to that email. So thank you for sending that in. And um, if you have any other similar sorts of questions, things that you want me to answer on a personal level, I'm always happy to do so. You can send me an email. Actually, a question that I have for you guys, especially any of you who are yoga instructors or maybe um, people who frequent yoga classes. In a couple of weeks' time, I'm doing a talk in a yoga studio in London and I, I've got, i got sort of a, a number of things that I have to say on the topic of uh, eating disorders in the yoga studio but if you have anything in your own experience that you think is important and you think that I'm going to be um, I should be talking about I'm going to have an audience full of yoga uh, London yoga teachers your London yoga instructors and if there's anything that you think that from either the perspective of a student or the perspective of instructor yourself, that I should bring up and talk about um, on the topic of eating disorders in the studio, then please shoot me an email and you can get to me at info, I-N-F-O, at TabithaFarrar.com. That's I-N-F-O at TabithaFarrar.com. Or you can tweet to me. My Twitter handle is la- at love underscore fat underscore. Thanks for listening, guys. Cheers, and until next time, cheerio.